So when you ask people, why do they all the weapons malfunction? They have the immediate answer that, you know, the proximal answer, which is nobody did any weapons maintenance. And so I say, yeah, but that unit had a commander, a first sergeant, you know, platoon leaders, platoon sergeant, squad leaders. How did that entire group of leaders fail to get their people to clean their weapons? Well, clearly, they didn't think they would be the ones doing the fighting. Uh, 322, we're throwing fire. Imagine if every moment of every day was unscheduled, unknown, and uncertain. Where you had to choose between your life and the life of another. Where you were deployed somewhere in the world to face an unknown threat and an unseen enemy. This is the podcast designed to serve those who serve us. So join me as we unpack and uncover why we do what we do when we do it from life's most extreme moments. I'm your host, Jeff Fanman, and this is Mindset Radio. All right, welcome back to Mindset Radio. Listen, today is going to be a lot of fun because with me is Matt Larson. This guy, career Army Ranger, really best known as a hand-to-hand combat expert and, well, the father of the U.S. Army's modern combatives program. I mean, this is the guy that brought us out of the dark ages of stick and move into something that really matters and really works. He served in both the U.S. Marine Corps and the 75th Ranger Regiment, over 22 years. He's served overseas in a variety of other capacities, which we may dive into. Uh, Currently holds a master's in combat psychology, headed to work on his doctoral uh, program here, which he's really excited about and we may get into. Uh, But I I think today, Matt, and you currently are serving as the director of combatives for U.S. Military Academy at West Point, which is pretty awesome. So first off, thanks for stopping and taking some time and coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, man. I think this is going to be a good conversation. I like to ebb and flow in the, in the essence of the podcast between, you know, people that, that maybe the audience doesn't get access to, you know, good quality psychologists or uh, people doing things that maybe aren't in their normal everyday environment. And then like down and dirty, nitty gritty, you know, let's, kick the shit out of each other and throw stuff around kind of conversations as well. So that's what I'm hoping for today. So feel free to just bring it. All right. Yeah, man. So let's talk about this for a minute. Let's start with, you know, kind of your world, right? Let's start with combatives. And I want to dig into like, you know, you and I had a brief conversation the other day. There is so much psychology and human behavior and mindset capacity and, performance issues, you know, a lot different than going to the range and just putting holes in paper. Right. Yeah. We, we like to, uh, we like to say there's a skill set and a, and a mindset associated with the combatants. And it's, it's equally important for both. And in fact, for, for most of the, of the force, the mindset is far more important because they, their chances of getting into hand to hand combat are, are slim. Sure. Um, so, you know, that's a, it's a good thing to remember that even from the beginning, you know, combatives is is at least half of it is about, you know, inculcating the warrior ethos and making sure people have the right sort of mentality uh, towards their training and towards um, and towards fighting wars, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's you know, I think it is it is such a crucial part of your development as 
Really anything. I mean, I can even relate it back to the fire service and other areas, right? We're just not talking about military guys, law enforcement officers, a variety of ways. And I think law enforcement officers are more likely to be in a hand-to-hand style scenario than most military people these days. But at the same time, I think the level of training you get, like what, what, if you just take kind of the combatives out of it for a minute, the things that happen internally, I think are pretty significant when you really train at a good level of combatives, you know, programming. Well, imagine this, you know, what I like to say is, have you ever been to the SHOT Show and look around at everybody at the SHOT Show and realize that probably 50% or better of the people there would be better off going to a fitness expo yeah so there's there's a and that's that's completely that is completely a mental uh fight there why why are those people why are those people you know considering themselves warriors or fighters or anything else when it's like years ago i saw this show about a guy who was supposedly living the samurai lifestyle this is back when i was really into martial arts and and the, and the guy, like he, he wore a Hakama, you know, the, the kind of pants mm-hmm. they wear and he had the haircut his house was like a Japanese house of that era. And the whole time I kept thinking, yeah, but he's fat. Like right. how many, like how many fat samurai are there? You know, step one of being a warrior <laughs> is, is to have the sort of mindset that will make you do PT. Right. Right. So how do you get people to do it? Right. That's, that's, that's the key. You know, we, we talk a lot about the the great bad example, as my, as my father used to say, perfectly good bad example of the 507th maintenance unit. You know, so so we all know they got lost, and we know that they that every single weapon in that unit, every pistol, rifle, crew serve weapon, every single weapon malfunctioned. So when you ask people why do they all the weapons malfunction, they have the immediate answer that you know the proximal answer, which is nobody did any weapons maintenance. And so I say, yeah, but that unit had a commander, a first sergeant, you know, platoon leaders, platoon sergeant, squad leaders. How did that entire group of leaders fail to get their people to clean their weapons? Well, clearly they didn't think they would be the ones doing the fighting. Yeah. And that's actually the problem, right? And that's the same reason they got lost. It's the same reason why they probably didn't know anything about, you know, trauma medicine. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I, I think that's a difference. So, I'm gonna, you know, let's let's just talk about it real quick. Now, you've served in both the Marine Corps and in Ranger Regiment. You know, I, I always feel like, you know, Marine Corps, I don't know how it is today when you get recruited in, but like, you know, I don't care who you are. Everybody's a soldier. Um, a little bit that way in regiment, right? Doesn't matter because that's been proven. Doesn't yeah, matter, I, I would not. say that the, the mentality in the Marine Corps and the Ranger Regiment are similar in many ways. The, the main differences between the two are that there's a whole lot more Marines and they can't get rid of people who are not that good. So, right. you know, if you, you show up at a Ranger Regiment, A, you got a whole lot of money to train with, and B, you know, if somebody's not cutting the mustard, man, you get rid of them. Yeah, so, you're out. So that, so that means that the, the standards are stay high and whatnot. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. So the, so the Marine Corps, they're very similar in that, in, in, in many aspects like that. Um, but I would also say, you know, how we, we, we say today that it's every Marine or rifleman and, and the Marine Corps is really like that, but I'm not sure it was really as like that back when I was in the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was in the Marine Corps in the eighties, you know, when Reagan was president and 
At the end of my time in, they hired a new commandant named Al Gray, who came from being the commander of the 2nd Marine Division. And he was the guy responsible for that in large part in the Marines. You know, he, he did all this wonderful stuff. Like the day he came in, he had mandatory road march miles for every unit in the Marine Corps and a host of things to make everybody live the life of the grunts a little bit. Right. And so that was all, that was all about that. It was all about how do you change the mentality of the entire force to make sure that every Marine feels that they're a rifleman so that they'll train themselves to be, you know, better. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it, so I talk a lot about like putting yourself in the conditions that you need to be in. And the, the question underneath that is, what is the condition you need to be in at different moments of times? And how do you test yourself? How do you push yourself? How do you begin to like, you know, check your status instead of walking around, walking around the range with your 5'11s or your 10, you know, being a 1022 guy or a, you know, 40, you know, 44 guy or whatever you are, right? Depending on how much gear you're carrying, uh, you can look cool. But I think the interesting thing is when you step on the mat with another human being, and it's on, like, you're going to learn a lot in those few moments. And I'll tell you a funny story. So we used to sell T-shirts that said, we both know why you don't like combatives. <laughs> <laughs> right? And the yeah. funny part is we actually do. You know, now looking back at it is a, is, a, is a bit of a scientist. The reason people don't like combatives is performance anxiety. Yeah. It's, really, it's really that simple, you know, and and and. Imagine you're the commander of a unit or the first sergeant or some senior person in some elite unit and along comes and you're the top of your profession, right? You best one of the best guys in the whole world. And along comes somebody and says, hey, here's this thing that you know nothing about that you need to know. And when we're training on it, you might get humiliated. And that right there is why combatives is hard to push around the force because people are afraid of it and they're not afraid. They're not afraid of injury. They, they, right. that's, that's just an excuse, right? Like, so the injury rate at the Army Combative School is very, very low. Our injury rate here at West Point for combatives is lower than it is for handball. You know, we, wow. we, have, we have one of the lowest rates of injury of any of the activities we run here. I think the only ones less than us is swimming. So it, it's not physically dangerous. That's just a myth, right? So, you know, imagine this. What was the, what was the most injury-producing physical activity in the, all the years of both the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, it was basketball. So oh, nobody, yeah. nobody's afraid to get out there and play basketball. Right. Right. And, and if they were, if it was really about safety, they'd be out banning basketball because it is. And, and the number two one was running. And if, if you were, you know, spend any time on those, some of those little fobs over there, oh, yeah. you know, some of them were a hundred yards long and you, you have, Fools out there running, you know, in circles for miles, you know, yeah. <laughs> trying yeah. to get the running in. And so, even even with that going on, running remained the number two injury-producing event. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think that you know, it's it's interesting. So when you look at that performance anxiety, I mean, the result of that is well, you don't look good, right? And and exactly. all of us have to look good in front of everybody. And yeah, you're putting yourself. Not at physical risk, but kind of, you know, emotional risk. You're, you're risking your ego. Uh, I just, you know, we just talked about, you know, how to set the ego aside on some things the other day on a, on a show. And I mean, yeah, you're really 
you're more than likely going to get some bumps and bruises. I mean, I've, you know, I, I can remember in high school screwing around with my buddy who was like five foot nothing, uh, but he was one of the top wrestlers. Uh, and <laughs> I can remember being tied up on the ground like, okay, lesson learned. Don't do that again. Right. Uh, yeah. I so, mean, you know, it's, it's funny, you know, like um, from the psychology perspective, the, the two primal human fears, first one is fear of death, obviously. And the second one is fear of loss of status. Yes. And so status is, is what motivates people for almost everything we do, you know, from the, from a, like I said, from the evolutionary psychology perspective, that's what it's really all about. Men compete to form hierarchies primarily because they have access to females. Right. So, sure. So we don't want to lose status because next thing you know, we're losing all the things that come with it. So, so we can talk about that more later when we talk about psychology, but, but that's really what's, what's going on. So people are afraid to lose status. And, and, you know, the other one, I mean, imagine that's why people don't want to, that's why people are afraid to speak in public. They're not, they're not afraid that they're going to get up there and die. They're afraid that they're going to get up there and say something stupid and lose status. Right. Right. 100%. 100%. And, you know, and in, in, in doing some of the work that you've done, I mean, that's, I think that's why there's a lot of people that avoid it, right? And, you know, you could host a range day, you could, you know, you could, you could have two things going on simultaneously for most places, you know, you could have half of the day being out at the range, just, you know, punching holes in paper, then doing some drills, and simultaneously, a combatives program, right? And you get your choice of which one to go. I mean, my guess is there'd be like, two or three people in the combatives program and 500 over on the range waiting to put some holes in paper. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it's, you know, look, you, you, it, here's the interesting thing from West Point, right? Which portion of this institution is charged with inculcating the warrior ethos in people? Well, it is not the department of military instruction, right? It's the department of physical education. And the reason is because going to the rifle range is not scary. Yeah. You know, and if you, and that, that's the thing, that's why people choose that. You can tell that it's not scary because people are happy to do it. Yeah. You know, and there's nobody that's, I mean, if you're afraid of shooting guns, <laughs> you're, you're really in the wrong profession, right? Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> Drastically, right? <laughs> but there's a whole lot of people who like to shoot guns who definitely do not want to do anything involved fighting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is, which is odd to me. You know what I mean? Which is, at least from my perspective, it's a very odd way to approach kind of your profession. Right. I mean, I think there's, there's a ton of value you can, you can gain uh, from doing drills on the range and doing some stuff and doing some work around the gun. And there's a lot of underpinning stuff there, but you know, to me, if I really want to evaluate my ability to perform in almost any moment in time, I think you got to go to the mat with that. Like you got to put yourself, you got to kind of be willing to expose yourself. I mean, part of that is, you know, this, this idea of an operation mindset is that willingness to humble yourself, right? That willingness to be open to, to being pushed or challenged or, uh, I mean, even, even losing at times, even maybe just putting yourself, you know, in a condition where you might not win. Yeah, no, that's right. It's exactly right. And, and well, I mean, 
just imagine all the things that people don't want to do. <laughs> yeah. When you're, when you're a warrior, that's the stuff you need to do. Yes. And another thing to think about is think when was the last time? I mean, there's a, there are a host of tasks, combat tasks that require hand to hand combat. So for example, when was the last time a bunch of us soldiers or, or SWAT team members or something like that charged into a building where they were authorized to kill everyone in the building. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. That does not happen very often, right? I mean, maybe, maybe in 2003, you know, maybe when the guys went to get bin Laden, other than that, other than that, you're there. The reason we're sending people is because you can't kill everybody, right? If we, we can kill everybody in the building, we can send cruise missiles. Totally. So, so, so therefore when you go in the building, part of it is manhandling people. Mm Mm-hmm. And if you don't know how to manhandle people, I mean, one good news is most Americans are big and we we can shove people around wherever we go, especially a lot of, you know, soldier types are big and strong people. Sure. And, and that that's a good thing to be. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I love I, I like this idea. I mean, I love the idea of, you know, putting yourself to test a little bit right to working through things that come up at various times. Uh and yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of people that avoid uh, the opportunity to train like that, to, to really get in and train some combatives. And you're going to be faced with it. I don't care. I mean, even, you know, I grew up as a fireman. So, you know, pulling drywall, pulling bodies, moving people around. I mean, there's it's still the same kind of, it might not be fighting for myself, but, you know, if a roof collapses on me, you better believe I've got to have that close in strength, capacity, and mental ability to navigate my way out of that situation. Yeah. And I would say too, there's a, the, one of the interesting mental elements of that. It's like, it's like parachuting, you know, when you're doing a mass attack or something, when you're a fireman, you are typically not going to do the super dangerous thing by yourself. And so that's, that's, that's a, you know, team sports have a less of an issue with performance anxiety than do individual sports. Yeah. So if you can go with your buddies and, you know, almost everybody who's anybody who's been in real combat knows the difference between being the number one man and the number two man. Right. Mm-hmm. So when yeah. you're the number one man, you want that guy right next to you because you feel like you're alone, man. When you're going through that door or around that corner or something like that, you know, I like to have the guy put his hand on me. So yeah. I want to know he's there whenever I'm going. Right. Yeah. And when you're the number two guy, though, even though you're in just as much danger, it doesn't feel like you are because you know you're not by yourself. Right. Right. You can actually you can actually have a line of sight on that. Yeah. And I mean, and even, you know, from the fire service standpoint, most line of duty deaths, most major incidents happen because somebody gets separated. You actually end up in that space yeah, you know, exactly. kind of alone by yourself, having to, you know, get you got cut off from your crew or you fell through a floor or something happened. And so, you know, and you know, even the patrol, I mean, uh you know, it doesn't to me today, the problem is it it's not just, hey, how do I train a SWAT team? How do I train the military guys? I mean, it goes all the way down. Guys are walking into police departments. You know, the the desk sergeant could be faced with a gun at any point in time. You know, guys on patrol, people on patrol. You never know what you're going to pull over. I mean, it is there's nowhere to hide anymore, in my opinion. Well, and you know, there's another interesting thing that, you know, you talk about the police forces. There's another, look, I think the central lesson that I have to teach people about combative training, the the most important thing 
is that your combatives program has to fit within the culture of your organization. Mm-hmm. And so imagine what I mean by that, right? Like what percentage of cops train? And the, the percentage is, is not that good. And, and the reason it's not that good is because of the way the culture works, right? Right. So, so for example, in the Army, the program is built around fit, physical fitness training. So we, the, the, the hand-to-hand combat program is designed as a set of drills and training exercises that you can use to, in, you can integrate into your PT program. So for example, you could go for a run, you could do set of sit-ups, set of crunches, and then drill number three or something like that, right? Right, so, right. So, or three, three-minute rounds of pummeling or, you know, some live ground grappling or et cetera. And the reason it's done that way is because now you can't get away from it. You know, it's going to happen every day. It only only takes the amount of time that it takes to do a set of sit-ups to have some combatives going on. And if you're doing that, then everybody will get better at it, even if they don't want to. Okay. So that's a key thing, right? So imagine that now in a police force, because the way it works for law enforcement is they, they come into their organization they typically have a really good school at the beginning of it, you know, mm-hmm. their officer academy or whatever they call it, different places. And in that, they learn some defensive tactics. Right. And then they leave that. They go back out to the, they go out to the force and they may be 20 years, 30 years, you know, out there on the job. And what are their training opportunities and requirements? Yeah. It, besides going back to the range and. You know, yeah. qualifying and doing your stuff when you need to do and just checking it. You know, you fall into the the trap of just check the box. Like, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the way. And the way the mentality from the people who are running the show is is about money and time and stuff. Right. So imagine you're now the administrator in charge of a large organization. Well, every time that you're going to put people to train you have like workman's comp issues and stuff right so if Mm -hmm. your training is realistic you're gonna you're gonna have people who are not working and still getting paid you know and you also have to budget for it right so if you're hourly employees and i say hey we're gonna do two hours of training i have to budget everybody's salary and that's two hours and none of those people are out on patrol right right yeah a lot of times it comes into overtime that's right so end up so what they end up doing is they're they're you know they're uh, juggling the, or balancing, I should say, the demands, the fiscal demands and those other things with, with the requirement to have trained people. And so it ends up being the check the box thing. So, you know, whenever they you appear in court and the lawyer says, you know, were you certified on this piece of equipment? And you say, yes, I was certified on this piece of equipment on this date and blah, blah, blah. I did this many hours of training and it sounds like, you know what you're doing. So if you say that same sort of stuff, I did six hours, you know, I did my annual requirement on defensive tactics on this day. It sounds like you know what you're doing. The problem is we we actually understand the psychomotor learning process and we know that you can't learn skills that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, imagine if imagine if it was like learning to play the violin. Right. And and for the record, the violin's just going to be there and you're going to manipulate it, but it's not going to fight back. So it's an, so it's an easier it's an easier skill to learn to play the violin than it is to learn to manhandle people. Okay. So with that being said, if you said, okay, you know, at the beginning of my career, I had 18 hours of violin training when I was in my course, or 40 hours or whatever. And then every year since then, I've had six hours. 
that's the skill level we have on on that is the skill level we can count on in hand-to-hand combat in most law enforcement personnel now yeah. that doesn't mean that doesn't mean there's not people out there training hard. There certainly are, right? There's oh yeah, some, yeah. But they're doing it. They're doing above and beyond. I mean, that's most of the right. listening. Well, yeah, most of the people that are going to listen to this are probably people that would tend to lean that way, right? They're looking for ways to be better yeah. at their jobs. They're looking for exactly. something. Yeah, yeah. And it's and it's unfortunate that it's left that way. But you know, listen, I'd rather take some extra time and. And get it elsewhere if it's not provided, if it's not in the normal course of my job, uh, because, you you know, you've you kind of have to. And well, they're not kind of like I think it's it's one of those things that if you are choosing to put yourself in certain environments, part of your preparation is being ready for whatever might come. And this is a a critical skill. Right. I mean, if you look at like what what you know what the core capacities are to me uh being involved in some kind of combatives and we'll talk a little bit about you know your styles and how you recreated uh kind of the old school stuff and how we you know update it and things that you're doing because i think that'll be a be a value uh but you know i mean these guys should be doing something with somebody i mean go to yeah. the gym and kick the shit and out think, of each other and i think they the self-motivated people are are doing that and they are, you know, they're searching out the Brazilian Jiu Jitsu gym or the mixed martial arts gym or the judo Mm -hmm. club or the boxing gym or something like that. Um, And they're, and they're training the self-motivated people. And you see people all the time who are really well-trained and you see some units that are, that are taking that and putting it in a tactical perspective. You know, there's very few people in a, your typical Brazilian Jiu Jitsu gym who are grappling over control of a handgun. Right. But but that's really what you're going to be doing when you're mm-hmm. a law enforcement officer. Right. So. Yes. So. So you there's a lot of people taking it that next step and saying, OK, so, you know, how do you know if the person you're grappling with has a blade on them? Well, you don't. So that means your grappling has to has to take into account that the person you're fighting might have a blade. You're not training like that. Well, you're not training like you need to. So so that's there's a lot of people really doing the right stuff on that, you know. What I would also say, though, is imagine this, you know, that we're talking about all the self-motivated people, right? Right. And, and you hear people all the time saying, oh, we should all be doing every cop should be doing jujitsu, et cetera. OK, so that's true. So how do you get them doing it? And here's the problem, right? Who knows how to get them doing it? Because the person who doesn't know how to get them doing it is the local martial arts teacher. Yes. And it, it doesn't matter who that guy is. He might be the janitor or he might be the, the holder of the Red Sash and Five Animal Kung Fu, or he might be the latest UFC champion. It doesn't make any difference. What his expertise, I mean, it makes some difference, but his expertise is in how to train self-motivated people. Mm-hmm. And so I have a commercial gym, right? Guess who comes into that building? People who want to. People who want to be there. Absolutely. Right. Now, how, now imagine that and imagine any organization, military or law enforcement, what percentage of those people are self-motivated to go find the training? Because it's a low percentage and and those people are finding the training. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, most cases, that's going to be a single digit number. Yeah. And, and the people, the, the I'm a, I'll tell you a, a bit of a story to kind of illustrate the point, right? When I first started being the, you know, gaining success with the combatives program. One of the ideas that I had was that we would hire black belts in jujitsu, you know, MMA experience and whatnot to help 
coach all the uh, divisions around. So I'm not going to say where this was because the person is a really good person, but, but one of those guys who was, you know, had a master's degree in physical education, was a black belt from a really reputable source himself. He had great, he was a great teacher. I have nothing bad to say about the guy, right? Really good person. Yeah. I took him to one of the divisions and we put, we built a gym underneath him, you know, big, enough mats to cover two basketball, you know, courts and, uh, you know, all the, all the fixings, if you will, on how to do it. I put him through our courses on what you should teach and, and how, et cetera. And so then I left and I, I came back six months later to inspect. And when I got there, there was like a hundred people on the mat. I was amazed, right? I was, this is really, really good. And so I said, yeah, you're doing a great job here. Now let's go inspect the division. He's like, what do you mean? <laughs> I said, there are 20,000 people in the division. It's your job to train those 20,000 people, right? Yeah. So 100 out of 20,000 is failure. If you had eight UFC champions all coming from the 82nd Airborne and no one else was training except for 100 people, you would have failed as a combatant instructor. Yeah. And that's, that is actually what every, that's what the best civilian martial arts teachers know how to do. Get 100, maybe 200, maybe 300 people training. So 200 out of the 20,000, I'm pretty sure the math on this 1% success. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, and, and that goes, you know, that goes across the board. And I think that's a big point, right? Which is you're only going to do the things that you choose to do. Right. And I think there's a disconnect in some cases that says, and it's just a, I think it's a cultural issue. In a, in a lot of ways that uh, I don't have to do all that. And I think that becomes, that, that starts breaking down the systems over time. Uh, you know, I mean, I think you, it, it seems to me that there's this atmosphere that certain things like training at that level or training combatives or going to the range consistently or doing, that's like reserved for those guys over there, you know, the SWAT guys or the, you know, the really supercharger guy, the young guys or the, this guy, you know, somebody it's like reserved for somebody else. Not, I don't need that. Well, what I would say is this, right. And in, in fact, I say this in my classes all the time because I'm training army leaders. Right. And I say, what, what's the best thing about the army? Well, the best thing is that we can make people do shit that they don't want to do. <laughs> yes. Right. So, so that means we can make everyone train combatives. Now, the question is, you know, they're going to be, there, there's a, there's a term in sports science called coping and avoiding, right? Yep. So whenever you start trying to teach a class and you, and, uh, and you're, it's a bunch of people who don't want to be there. You see them coping and avoiding. That's the people who are standing around talking to each other. They do one repetition, think they got it, all that kind of stuff, right? They're, they're like coping with the fact that they're, cowards and they're avoiding the training, right? So, so how do you, the real key, the real expertise of a combatant instructor is how to make sure you overcome all that, mm. you know, and the way you do that is structurally and by understanding the culture, right? Yeah. For, for example, like I said, in the army, it's designed to be built around PT. So soldiers go out and do PT every morning. You know, the whole army goes out, right yep. face, forward march, double time. Hit it. Goes on around or something like that, right? So that works in that organization that does that. But that same method 
Does it work for cops? Do cops do PT before they go out on patrol? Yeah. Or no. anytime? Yeah. 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 So when we so when we built the Air Force program, for example, and they have a really good guy named Dave Durnil, who's a very good friend of mine. He's a good black belt from Hanato Tavares, right? A, he's been out the, at the Air Force Academy for a long time. But when they built their program, their program has to be different because the culture is different. Right. Because the Air Force doesn't roll out and do PT every morning either. Not not or large portions of the Air Force. Yeah. Done. So they yeah, so they totally. had to do a they had to do a separate or different sort of system. And that doesn't change the nature of fighting. You know, you choke a guy these ways, et cetera. The, the fighting, the techniques, all that, even the training methods, they're the same. But what isn't the same is how you would fit that within your culture. And so that's the key, right? Like that's the main thing that a combatant instructor needs to know. Yeah. And, and, you know, I want to dig in a little bit deeper on that here when we go to the next episode, because I think there are people in the law enforcement communities in the fire services in the, you know, there are the, the health and wellness guys, the PT guys, there are people that are like put thrust into that role. They're really kind of left hanging. They're not trained in how to cultivate their environment. You know, they're not master trainers. A lot of times they're not those people. They happen to be filling kind of a billet, if you will. Uh, and you know, they, they do bring some great things to the table and they do create opportunities for the departments, but it's kind of a, uh, you know, Hey, if you want to come, here's something that we can do, you know, within the the span of, you know, our ability. And so I want to definitely dive in a little bit more to that. Uh, I want to talk about combatives as they are. I want to talk a little bit about the genesis of and conversion into stuff today. So if you'll do me a favor and stick around uh, as we go into a little bit of a deep dive here, I'd love to continue this conversation. And then, of course, we get into my favorite topic of it, which is the psychology behind all this crap uh, that uh, that we're talking about. So, Matt, if you'll stick around, that would be awesome. All right. I'll be right here. Okay, cool. All right. So, listen up. That's uh, going to wrap up today's episode here. I'm going to have links to Matt Larson at large all up on the uh, show notes available at mindset.com backslash mindset radio. I'm just going to put a link to his author page on Amazon because he's got several books that uh, you can dig through that I think you'll find extremely useful in charting yourself a new course. So Matt and I are going to get back together. We're going to continue this conversation. So don't forget, subscribe, and we'll see you on Wednesday.